so you don't have to turn with me here this morning, but I do want to take you to John chapter 20 very quickly. As a reminder, and we've said this as we've walked through each, each, of, the, each of the different sections that we've been through in the book of John here, but I want you to see something regarding John's objective for the entire book of John. I've said to you that John was the apostle, yes, but John's writing this as an apologist. He's writing these things, and you, you, you read through, and you see a lot of talk about the deity of Christ. You see a lot about redemption. You see a lot about uh, the divine sonship of Christ, his divinity, lordship, redemption, the, the key themes that we're, that we're chasing through the gospel here. But I want you to notice something, and that's in John chapter 20, verse 31. I want you to hear this, John chapter 20, verse 31, and I want you to kind of tuck this away because John, for some reason, way late in his book, he decides to write this, but it's paramount as far as looking at the entire gospel. So John chapter 20, verse 31, John says, these, these things... This gospel, this book, this apologetic has been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This isn't just the purpose of whatever the context is of John 20. John is saying, Everything that I've written, he's putting it under one umbrella. And considering the time, considering the nature of John's gospel, he finally gets to it 20 chapters in. And he says, this is the reason these things have been written. And he writes it later, so consider all that they've heard. He's building this defense. He's offering this apologetic for the divine sonship of Christ, that Christ is, is, is fully God, fully man. Remember, that John the Baptist comes out and says, someone's coming, something better is coming. Remember the wedding at Cana, changing water to wine. We see that a better wine is coming. There's a better marriage that will be consummated at the end of all things. These things are on the horizon. We get now to Jesus cleansing the temple. We're going to see you know, kind of what lies beneath the surface there. What is the author communicating to us ultimately under the authorship of the Holy Spirit? What is the Holy Spirit communicating to us? And we take that and we apply it to what is being said here in John chapter 20. These things, everything, every argument that he makes is so that you might believe. That you would believe these things. So we start by way of introduction, with John 20, 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is John's objective. This is what he wants to get across. Or he wants to say this so that all that he's presenting to you will land, and the dividends of that will be life in the name of Jesus. So we're, our, our text brings us to this portion in Jesus' ministry where he cleanses the temple. Now, most of us have heard this story. But I want to say something about this story, something that's in debate right now, and I'll tell you kind of where I land right now. If you look at the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll see the same account of Jesus cleansing the temple, but you won't find it in the same place. You find it later in Jesus' ministry. Like, 
close to the very end of his ministry. Now, there are some that would argue that there's two different temple cleansings. So here in John, there's a cleansing at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and based on the synoptic gospels, there must have been one at the end of Jesus' ministry. And that might be so, and that's fine. But what I find interesting is the other side, and the other side is this, that John places something that could have been at the end of Jesus' ministry, and he breaks the chronological order and puts it in juxtaposition with the wedding at Cana. So you've got this narrative that shows Jesus cleansing the temple, which is representative of God's divine judgment on those who will die in their religion. They will die in their religion. They will die in their Judaism. They will die in their empty state. And there will be nothing that can be done about that. Nothing will stay the judgment of God. Nothing will reduce, nothing will lessen the potency of the judgment of God at that point. But I think because John's gospel is a bit different, and if you look at the two cases, if you look at the cleansing of the temple and we look at the details of that and you pit the details of that account in John to the accounts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're almost identically the same. Which is why I land currently on the side that John has taken something that probably happened at the end of Jesus' ministry and he writes it in out of chronological order. And he does this. This juxtaposition has a purpose. And the purpose is this. You have the wedding at Cana, which shows God's favor, God's grace. When he says, listen, those pots are empty, much like Judaism. They can't cleanse you. They can't help you. So I'm going to fill them to the brim with a better wine. And that wine represents blood. And he's saying that what I offer you is sufficient enough for eternity to cleanse you from your sin. And so there's tremendous grace, mercy, and the favor of God in saying, here it is, the blood of my son, that you might have life. Run from empty religiosity into Jesus and his gospel. And so that's good news. We walk away from the narrative of the wedding at Canaan, and this is, this is good news, this is great. I can go and tell people this in the world and say, this is good news. See, a lot of times we think that this confrontation that we have to have with lost people has to be this ugly bad thing, as if we have some bad news to give them. I mean, it's not fun having bad news for someone. It's not fun for a doctor to go to, you know, go to a patient's family member or friend or a loved one or whoever and say they didn't survive. We lost them. That's not good news. That's hard news. So we don't come to lost people with hard news. I don't know why there's so much fear and trepidation about approaching a lost person because it's not bad news. It's good news. Yeah, we have to deal with sin. Yeah, we have to deal with the wrath of God. But at the end of the day, it's like, but there's a way out of that. So I think that's the wedding at Cana. And now you've got this unique juxtaposition of God through the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, inspiring John to write in this way and take this story out of chronological order. And I'm just saying that's my opinion through what I've studied. If you feel the other way, that's okay. That's okay. It's not a sin to believe, ah, I think there were actually two cleansings, or, 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 or maybe it goes another way. That's okay. But here's the way I'm understanding it and the, the way it makes sense as the text would unfold. So the wedding at Cana, and then you have this cleansing of the temple that shows God's divine judgment, retribution, and his absolute hatred and intolerance for the irreverence of man. 
And so those are close together. Those are pitted together so that we might have a snapshot side by side. If I follow God, this is what I get. A better wine, a better marriage, new covenant, all these great things. If I don't, God's holy wrath and his indignation rests on me. And I think that's probably why John writes in this way. So here we are, John chapter 2, with the narrative of Jesus cleansing the temple. And it begins in verse 13. I'll read this, not all of it, but I'll read. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple. He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers were sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away, do not make my father's house do not, do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples at that point remember that it was written, zeal for your father's house will consume me. So right out of the gate, it goes from zero to 60 in a second. So there's this festival that's taking place called the Passover. So let me explain that for just a moment. Because what John has done here is he's used... He's used fewer words than me. John has a better gift of conciseness than I do. But let me expound on this a little bit just to give you the picture because you may not know. So it begins by saying, now Jesus learned that the Pharisees heard that. I'm sorry, uh, wrong place. Uh, so the Passover of the Jews was at hand. So this is the Passover. We've heard of the Passover f- over before. But where that comes from is the book of Exodus. The children of Israel are freed from Egyptian slavery after hundreds and hundreds of years of being in bondage to the Egyptians. So they're freed from there. Now, in order to be freed from there, God brought about all these plagues onto Egypt. And the final plague was that God would send the death angel. God would send the one who would come and he would wipe out all the firstborns. And the only thing that would save them from that genocide was if they had the blood of a lamb that was wiped onto the lentils and onto the doorpost of every Israelite's household. And so we talked about this several weeks ago. We understand what that blood represents. Remember when John said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and we traced the Lamb language from the Old Testament to the New Testament. If you have forgotten that, go back and listen to it. It's just it's great. So the lamb's blood was spread on the lentils and the doorpost, and the angel would pass over, and they would be spared because of the blood. Clearly representative of Christ's blood, right? The beauty of of Scripture, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before it actually happened. But because of that Passover, because they were spared death, they were spared judgment because of blood, because of the sacrifice, they were finally let free. Pharaoh said, enough is enough, I can't do this. We'll let him go. Of course, Pharaoh then changed his mind, or to be more specific, God said he hardened Pharaoh's heart. And then Pharaoh, uh, so Pharaoh pursued the Israelites, and then God finally killed them. You know, water came crashing down, drowned everybody, a big scene. So now they're free, but they celebrate Passover every year to commemorate when God delivered them from slavery. And they still do it to this day. So it's a, it's a huge deal, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a festival and a celebration 
uh, of, of eating certain foods and making sacrifices, and people would come from all over just to come to Jerusalem. Now it says, now the Passover was taking place, but the temple is introduced into the context. And these are your two key elements of the text, the Passover and the temple. So the Passover's happening, people would come. It was said that Jerusalem would have had about 300,000 people. All right, to put that into some kind of, uh, to, to kind of give you a somewhat of a representation, uh, Greenville, I think, is, is, what is Greenville? Somewhere around 500,000, 600,000? Maybe I'm off a little bit. It's been a while since I've seen those, uh, seen those numbers. Um, so, but 300,000 people in Jerusalem. That's a lot of people in Jerusalem. But what would happen is people would come from all over to go to, the, to, go to Solomon's temple in Jerusalem that was built before Christ, somewhere close to 600 B.C., so the temple's built, and people for years and years and years would come to this temple. Now, the temple started back during the Exodus. The temple started because God said, I want you to build this place. He told Moses, I want you to build a, build a tabernacle. And we've talked about what the tabernacle represents. It's a place for God to dwell with his people. Now, all of this was foreshadowing. The tabernacle was very much a place built with human hands representative of God's dwelling with people. So they would carry this mobile temple with them. And this went on for hundreds and hundreds of years. Until, or sorry, this went on for, for many, many years until finally this temple was built by Solomon. So you have this beautiful temple that's built in this very specific region in Jerusalem. And people from all over would come to celebrate Passover and to make sacrifices and to worship at this temple. Now it was said by some Jewish historians, one being Josephus, that there would have been over a million people in Jerusalem when this celebration would take place. Now I have a picture of the temple, if Nathan can bring that up, so you can kind of get an idea of what's going on. So this is the center of the temple. Now you see a lot of area to the left and to the right of the, of the main area, the main attraction of the temple. Uh, these were called the courts of the Gentiles. So there were specific rules to doing anything in the temples, to doing anything in the temple. Gentiles were allowed. Gentiles were anyone that was not a Jew. Only Jews were allowed in this place. So you've got, you know, I won't, I won't highlight everything, but there's a lot of cool historical stuff that goes along with the temple. But basically, the Jews were, the Gentiles were cut off from going into this area here. So the Gentiles would be out here. They could be over here in the court of Gentiles. I think this in here was called the court of women. You've got places for sacrifices out here. You've got like this big water basin where people would come for the ceremonial purification of hands that we talked about last week, like at the wedding at Cana. But then you've got the holy place right through here in this big building, this tall building. And then inside there, you've got the holy of holies, the priest, just like you're in the tabernacle, just like when the just like when the children of Israel were in the wilderness, you had the high priest and only the high priest that could enter into the holy of holies, and he would make that sacrifice during the day of atonement. Now he would have to wear this robe with bells attached to it, and then and then a rope would run out behind him, kind of like a, a the train of of a woman's wedding gown, how it just flows and it's long like that. So he would have a robe and then the, 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 the bells and the rope would extend far back. Now this was because if he wasn't right before God, they believed that God would strike him down. If he wasn't right before God when he went to make the sacrifices, if he wasn't reverent when he went before God to make these sacrifices, God would strike him down and then people on the outside 
would have to pull him out using the rope because no one but the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies. So there's a lot of stuff that would happen in and around the temple during Passover. But can you imagine, can you imagine all the people, a million people in Jerusalem trying to get in here to make their sacrifices? Now, it says in the text that there were all these money changers selling pigeons and so on. The reason they would sell those things is because people traveling a long distance didn't want the burden of carrying animals with them. So they would say, you know what, let's carry some money and we'll go to the temple and we'll buy our sacrificial animals when we get there. So that way we don't have to carry it. And this was fine. This was okay. This was good. The problem was that these money changers were exploiting the consumers, the parishioners, they were exploiting them. This whole thing was okay. To offer sacrifice, this was okay because this was a part of the sacrificial system. Now, everything's about to change. Everything's about to change. We don't make sacrifices anymore because Jesus became the ultimate and sufficient sacrifice. But back then, before Jesus made that clear and before the gospel was complete, this was okay. This was the way that God had orchestrated and set things up to be. So this is an okay thing. The problem is exploiting people, robbing them of their money. You can see in other Gospels where it says, You have made my father's house a den of thieves, a den of robbers, it says in another translation. Who are the thieves? Who are the robbers? The money changers. This is who Jesus is targeting. This is who has created this great offense. This is who has created a great act of irreverence before God. Because you've taken a place that is designated for worship, a place that is central to the Jewish way of life, a place that God said, this is the way I want you to do things until a better thing comes along. And they're in there defiling all of these things because it's a place of worship. It's sacred. And they're defiling all these things with their exploitations of all the people that would come by. They would charge them way more money than what a pigeon would be worth. They would charge them way, way more money than what a sheep or what an oxen would be worth. And they're just robbing people blind. It's sordid gain. And that's what the Bible speaks of sordid gain as being evil. And this is what they're doing. They're making the house of God a den of thieves. And so there's the argument that a miracle occurs in this text. A miracle occurred at the wedding at Cana. And what's considered to be the second of Jesus' seven signs is the cleansing of the temple. And you may say, well, okay, you read it. He made, he made a cord, he made a whip, and he, <laughs> he just kind of ran people out. How would that be miraculous? Consider the fact that Jerusalem has... Over a million people, most likely, and that's conservative. Josephus actually counted it up to over two million people, but he was multiplying all the sacrifices and all this stuff, so most of the scholars would say it was probably closer, conservatively speaking, to one million people. So imagine one million people. Now, one million people obviously can't fit in there or out in the Gentile courts, but you can put a whole lot of people in there. One, one pastor, one theologian says it would have most assuredly been tens of thousands of people. 
tens of thousands. Now, I look at that, and I see people, if that's a proper scale, I can't imagine tens of thousands. But it might have been. I guess it's pretty big. But tens of thousands of people. I don't care if it was tens of thousands of people or if it was a 100 people. It says that Jesus made this cord, and he drove people out. Specifically, he drove the money changers out. So there's a spectacle that's going on here. And if we read on in Scripture, it continues, and it says, So the Jews said to him after he drove them out, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? Of course, we know that Jesus was speaking of his resurrection, which he does again. Because on the third day, he goes to this wedding at Cana, where he turns everything on its head. And now, at the cleansing of this temple, yet again, we see this foreshadowing of when everything will change, when everything will come to a climax, and that's at his resurrection, which completed the gospel. So this is what's happening at the temple. So it's fairly simple. It's fairly straightforward. Jesus comes in. He finds them being irreverent, and he will not stand for this irreverence, so he responds. He responds according to his nature, for a disdain and a hatred for irreverence, and he deals with it. And you say, whoa, does the punishment fit the crime? This is not the first time that God has responded in kind. It started with the garden when Adam and Eve disobeyed God's command, which is irreverent. And so what did God do? He didn't slap them on the hand. He didn't make a, a whip and whip them. No. He said, I will place a curse on you, and that curse is death. Not only that, not only are you going to die, but now you need to be redeemed because you're separated from me because there's sin. Not only that, I'm going to kick you out of the garden. You can't be here because you don't belong. I mean, this is harsh. God sent a flood of global proportions because man's mind was on sin continually. God responds in kind because God hates irreverence. And that's one, one of the teachable moments in this text is that God takes irreverence very Seriously. So what is irreverence? I think you understand irreverence best by understanding what it is to revere something. To revere something means to respect something. That's all it means. It doesn't mean that you're worshiping that thing. It just means you have a respect for that thing. So I would say you need to revere your parents. You need to have certain reverence for authorities in your life because they are in a position of authority. And so you owe them your respect as far as the office. There are plenty of people who aren't respectable people who are in an office that requires a certain modicum of our respect because of the office. And so this is not a new thing. This is not even a strange thing for Jesus to do this. So God takes irreverence very, very seriously. And irreverence is basically showing or displaying a disrespect for God, a disrespect for his rule, and all the things of God. That is what irreverence is. Irreverence is not as much of an isolated incident as you may think. Because I don't know about you, when I think of irreverence, I think of something like the money changers. I think, okay, they're doing this awful thing. You know, this is a place of worship. This is the house of God. And so they're worship. And I, I grew up in this culture I grew up in this culture of take off your hat because this is the house of God. I get that. You know, uh, be quiet because this is the house of God. I was a youth and I was sitting 
I was sitting where the youth always sat. We had a very large youth group, and I was sitting there in the church. This church probably at the time was about seven, 800 strong. Now it's a bit bigger than that, but about seven or 800 strong. And we're sitting there, and I'm about three-quarters of the way up from the back on the right. My pastor and mentor, now he's with Jesus, Mickey Dalrymple, was standing up there, and he was just waxing eloquent from the Word of God. And, all, and then all of a sudden, his tone shifts, <laughs> and, he, and his eye line meets the youth group. And he snaps, and it was the loudest snap. It was like a Thanos-type snap, right? Just, he snaps, and half the congregation disappeared. No, he snapped. <laughs> and he said, put the pictures up. And he was pointing at me. But I didn't have pictures. I didn't have a phone. Didn't have iPhones. Didn't have, didn't have those kind of phones back in the day. I'm thinking, it's not me. I wanted to stand up and look at my mom and say, it's not me. I didn't do it. Because my mom sat, like, kind of adjacent to me. And I'm like, oh, you know, like, I promise it wasn't me. But it was actually people right behind me that had pictures. Why did he do that? Because they were being irreverent. They were disrespecting the word of God when they should be sitting in subjection to it. They were creating a commotion and distracting others who were trying to sit in subjection to the word of God. So we think of irreverence like that. We may think of the band Marilyn Manson. We may think of the, the, the sacrilegious content of their, of their, uh, of their concerts. We think that's irreverent. Absolutely. It's absolutely irreverent. Today's sexual revolution, absolutely irreverent because God has said, this is how I've made it. And man says, nope, I'm going to create a God in my image and I will be what I want it to be. I, I will be what I want to be and I will suppress the truth. That's irreverence. And so for us who might not be caught up in the sexual revolution, for us who aren't going to the Marilyn Manson concerts, and, and, and cheering them on as they desecrate things and as they're sacrilegious. We sit here and we think, well, whew, I've dodged that bullet. But you haven't, and neither have I. If irreverence is a display of disrespect for God, his word, his authority, his rule, or all the things of God, then all of us are guilty of irreverence. So this is a big deal. This is a big deal. You may say, well, I'm not a money changer. Well, you are in a sense, because all of us are guilty of irreverence. All of us are guilty of disrespecting the word of God. He says, do this. We say, I'm going to do what I want to do, because functionally, doing what we want to do, which is in opposition to the word of God, is saying, I know what's best. So we think profaning the name of Christ through some cultish music is irreverent, and it is. Mocking God, absolutely irreverent. People burning crosses, making sport of the Christian religion for sordid gain, yes, absolutely irreverent. But irreverence is much broader, and we are much guiltier than we probably realize. Any disrespect for God, His word, His rule, and the things of God is irreverence. If reverence is to show respect for something, irreverence is to show disrespect or to verb to in a verb form to disrespect that thing and so god takes irreverence very seriously and the evidence of that claim is in the text where jesus drives out those who are being irreverent i mean i've given you evidence already of the flood and of you know uh, the, the fall 
And we can go on and on and on. Tower of Babel, God dispersing because of their irreverence. They built this thing and said, look at what we've done. That's irreverent. You've created an idol in yourself. That's irreverent. God responds to irreverence. And so here's another example of God responding to this. Irreverence invokes the divine judgment of God. So what is happening that would invoke such a response? I've already told you they're changing the money. The money changers are exploiting the poverty of the people. They're charging way too much and they're padding their pockets with money from the people who just want to come and offer a sacrifice and just want to worship God. There are those that would argue that Jesus comes in and see this is where Jesus this is where this is proof that Jesus was just a man. This is proof that he wasn't truly the son of God, that he wasn't truly uh, the fullness of deity in bodily form. They say Jesus lost his temper. He comes in and it says that he, he makes this whip. He didn't just say, uh, excuse me, guys, could you please remove yourselves from the premises because this is quite offensive. No. He says, okay, we'll deal with this. He makes a whip. He starts cracking heads. He's flipping tables on the way, okay? And I, I don't know if they were stone or if they were wood. I don't care. I have this picture that I drew for my dad when I was little and it's Jesus hanging on the cross and it's a real muscular, buffed-up Jesus. He's like, why is he so buffed up, son? I was like, because he flipped over tables. Like he did it all the time, you know? You know, bring him up. You know. so, 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 you know, this, this, is, this is the situation. Jesus comes in, and there are those that would say, see, he lost his temper. See, he, the anger got the best of him. Ah, finally, I have a Savior that I can identify with because anger gets the best of me. No, that's not what happened. There is a righteous anger, and then there's anger that leads to sin. The Apostle Paul dealt with anger. He says, listen, be angry, yet don't sin. If someone punches you in the throat, you should be angry about that, okay? If someone steals something from you, yeah, it's okay to be angry about that. If someone creates an offense or commits an offense against you, and your natural the response is, that upset me. That's okay if it upsets you. Now, if you become a vigilante and chase them down, getting revenge for the malfeasance committed against you, there you have a problem, you have a problem. If my wife says something to me that hurts me, because that may have happened once in our marriage, right? So if my wife says something to me that hurts me and I respond, you know, by trying to one-up her or to win, by hurting her worse than she hurts me, then I have sinned in my anger. If she says something to me and it hurts me and it makes me angry, I'm not in sin because it hurt me. I'm not in sin because I have an emotional response. It's what I do with that emotion that goes from this is okay to anger. Now Jesus, being fully God, fully man, rightly and naturally responds to this sin, this irreverence, and he drives people out. He drives them out. It didn't say that he actually tore their backs apart with this whip. It might have been just he's whipping and it sounds, the scripture doesn't say that, and I'm not trying to communicate that Jesus actually physically brought harm to these people. But he used what he needed to to get their attention. You better believe making a whip and starting cracking the whip, breaking the sound barrier above, above all these people doing this. And you got this man. I mean, carpenters are pretty buff and strong, right? I mean, just, uh, just experience. Um, so, you know, so he comes and he's tipping these tables. Some of you just got it. That's okay. That's okay. You're getting there. So um, Jesus displayed a righteous anger, a holy indignation, which is right, which is okay, which is good. Anger is not the sin, it's what we do with the anger. It's anger leading to sin, leading to those things which is wrong.
So Jesus cleanses the temple, but I want to show you something before we get to the application. He cleanses this temple, and so many times in the Bible it's foreshadowing of things. Just like, we won't, I won't unpack all this because it's pretty obvious, but later in this very text where he says, destroy the temple and I will raise it in three days, we see that and think, oh, that's pretty obvious. Resurrection, wow, the, be- the beauty of Scripture, the intentionality of the Holy Spirit in giving us these things, pulling back the curtain over and over and over again. But here's something you may not have thought of. Jesus coming in and driving out the leaven, the leaven that's in the camp, the sin that is in the camp, the sin that is in the temple, he drives it out. That is divine judgment, and it is representative of what is to come for those who die without Christ, those who die in their Islamic beliefs, those who die in their Mormonism, those who die in their easy believism, maybe even those who die in their nominal Christianity because a nominal Christian might not be a Christian at all. And so if we look at places like Revelation 19, we see what that might look like. Because if you think of the wedding at Cana, you see the gospel accounts and all of the gospel narratives. And you can see better wine, better marriage. But what's depicted in Revelation 19 of God's divine judgment has Jesus entering the scene a bit differently than he did the first time. Remember, they were expecting this conquering hero, but how did Jesus arrive? As a lamb. They wanted him to come with a sword to free them from Roman oppression, but he came as a lamb. When he comes again, he doesn't come that way. He's still the Lamb of God, but he comes more like a lion than he does a lamb. Listen to Revelation 19. Not all of it, just a little bit of it. But let the words create the image or set the scene. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. So God is taking this active role in being the avenger. And then you move over to verse 11, and here you have it. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. He's a warmonger. He comes making war. He came to bring peace this first time. Do you you see the contrast here? He came to bring peace, not a sword is what the scripture says. Now he comes making war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. It's interesting that John begins his prologue. He begins his Apostle with a prologue saying he's the word of God as the lamb. And now you have the word of God as a sword. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of his wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders. What does that symbolize? He's going to annihilate all things that are in opposition to him. And I've spent a life in irreverence. This is the Jesus that comes back. Not with peace, but with a sword. You see, Jesus is cleansing the temple because of, he cleanses the temple because of his intolerable hatred for irreverence towards God proves to be a message to all believers who are now his temple. So let me shift to some application. Because you have Jesus who is cleansing the temple. You have a lot about the temple from the book of Exodus to here in the Gospels. The temple plays a role throughout, and for good reason. So we don't dismiss the significance of the temple, but everything changes once Jesus arrives on the scene. Because listen to what the Scripture teaches us over and over again. With all this temple language, we arrive at places like Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 19. says, So then no longer are you strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Listen to this. In whom the whole structure, Jesus, as the cornerstone to the church, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a what? A holy temple. Who's he speaking of? All who profess Christ. He calls you the temple. But it's not just there that he says these things. He says it in 1 Corinthians 3. He says it in 1 Corinthians 6. But in 1 Corinthians 3, you have divisions in the church. And Paul's addressing these divisions. And if we get to verse 10 and start there, it says, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else built upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Listen to this. Do you not know that you are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So this is where this application comes to. First, the reality of those who are not in Christ. Because what they will experience is what is represented in Revelation 19. That is, that is the divine judgment of God the Father sending God the Son as a sword, not coming with peace, but coming as a warmonger, with a robe dipped in blood, with a tattoo on his thigh, with a name that no one knows, and he will utterly obliviate all who are in opposition to him. This is the justice of God, and it's fair, and it's good, and it's right. But also, you are the temple of God. So the application that you cannot get away from, just as Jesus cleanses this temple and there's something significant about having the temple pure, 
the message to us is that you, as the temple, must be pure. Because now, because now God doesn't reside in a place made with human hands. Because God's house is not now a place made with human hands, the scripture says. But you are the temple of God. You are where the Holy Spirit resides. This is the gift that we were given at Christ's ascension. He says, I will send a helper for you. I will send a comforter to you. We now have the Holy Spirit. We are now the temple. This is how God has designed all these things to be. And where, where in the image that you saw, only the high priest could make sacrifice. Only the high priest could go in there. The book of Hebrews makes it very clear that Jesus becomes our high priest. He has become the ultimate sacrifice. He is the one that has made us into the temple. So the word of caution to you is that you need to do what you need to do to make sure that the temple of God is clean. Now people take this out of context all the time. They say, see, your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, you shouldn't smoke cigarettes. Therefore, you shouldn't drink alcohol. You shouldn't get tattoos. Because your body's a temple, not a canvas. You shouldn't do these things. You shouldn't eat cheeseburgers. You shouldn't eat all of these things. Because your body's the temple. That is grossly out of context. Grossly, grossly out of context. Your body being the temple has nothing to do with substance and everything to do with holiness. Everything to do with holiness. The context of 1 Corinthians 6, where Jesus again, where Paul again reiterates the fact that your body is the temple, the context is in the context of sexual immorality. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Then the very next verse he says, for your body is the temple of God. He says, don't let the garbage in that will defile your soul. Don't watch things and take things in that will corrupt you from the inside because that doesn't belong to you. Your body is the temple of God. It belongs to the Holy Spirit, not you. So not only do you not have a choice or you don't have rights to your own body for those that are pro-abortion, but you don't have any rights to anything because Jesus has secured you in total. You belong to him. Jeremiah knew it. He said, I know, O Lord, that a man's life is not his own. It's not for man to direct his steps, Jeremiah 10, 23. That's the sentiment here. You don't have rights to defile the temple because it's not yours. You are a residing place for the Holy Spirit. So the introspective moment that we come to is that you have to ask yourself, what is Jesus saying to you through this text? I mean, we live in a world where sexual morality, pornography is a click away. It's a click away. And we, whoever indulges in these things, and maybe we make excuses. Maybe it's not listed as pornography, but if you IMDB it, you see that it scores a 10 out of 10 because of its sexually explicit content. Listen, that's pornography. And it's a reference. What about your conversations with coworkers? What about the jokes you entertain? What about the jokes you tell? What about the flippant attitude that maybe you've been guilty of before or I've been guilty of before when we're here and we're trying to worship? It's irreverence. And how does God respond to irreverence? He hates it. Jesus said, or the scripture says, do not let even 
Do not let there be a hint of immorality among you. What does a hint mean? Do we have a scale to measure that by? I promise you it's small. And I'm passionate about this because I know there's a lot of shows that are out there now that Christians want to justify watching when all you're doing is defiling the temple of God. You don't defile it through cheeseburgers or cigarettes or booze. You defile it by entertaining immorality of every kind. By tolerating immorality of every kind. And I'm happy to have conversations about the shows that are in my mind, the type of conversations that are in my mind, the type of conduct that is in my mind, that I've had to repent of in my life, that I may have to repent of again in my life, because it's defilement of what doesn't belong to me. And that's the place where the Holy Spirit of God resides. And he wages war, he's in combat against my flesh so that I might be pleasing and honorable to God. But the very last thing is this. I know that was some hard stuff, and hopefully, hopefully the Holy Spirit brought conviction where conviction is necessary. And I say hard things because I love you all. But how can I say that I love Jesus if as your pastor I'm not willing to say most likely there are some of you that entertain immorality. And why do I say that? Because you're human. Because I'm human. It's an inevitability. But I need you to know the consequence. I need you to be able to rightly count the cost of entertaining immorality. And that is the divine judgment of God. What kind of a pastor who says he loves people can really be taken seriously about his love for his people if he's not willing to say, stop watching the junk. Stop making justifications because your wife watches it with you. Because you're okay with that together. Wives, if you let your husbands watch softcore porn, pornography, shame on you. Because you're endorsing the objectification of women. And you have no grounds to stand on in defense of women who are objectified when you endorse it yourself. It's a hot button issue <coughs> for me. So I just know it comes, it comes with love. And the final thing, I just want to say this, and I'm done. The cleansing of the temple is not only a picture of God's divine retribution, God's divine judgment, but here's the good news. I think it pictures the gospel. I think it pictures the gospel because it's interesting to me that Jesus threaded together a cord so that he could eradicate the leaven, so that he could drive out that which was bad, so that there might be a temple that is pure, that is clean. And if I take that image and I go back to Isaiah 53 and other places in Scripture where it says that Jesus will become a reproach for all who believe, and I look at Isaiah 53 where it says, by his stripes we are healed. Jesus went through a scourging. He went through a torturous act so that what? We might be the temple and that we might be a pure and undefiled place for the Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus has done for us. So I think cleansing the temple is representative of the gospel. It's representative of Jesus' work in making us pure. So just like the wedding at Cana, I think there's more to this text than would meet the eye upon a, a quick perusal. And so hopefully we've taken these things that the Holy Spirit seems to be revealing to us and we can apply them 
and they can affect change in our life to make us look more like Jesus. Let's pray together and we'll be dismissed. Lord, you're good to us and we thank you. Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see the things that you see as unhealthy and unholy. Or that we wouldn't have such a narrow view of, into- of, of irreverence. But that we can see that any sin we commit is irreverence. Lord, you know my heart is to not lay a guilt trip on anybody that's not at all what I'm trying to do. But Father, I pray that the truth would land where it must and how it must. And Lord, that you would stir in us what needs to be stirred so that if we need to repent of things, we can repent. Lord, if we celebrate things that you've shown us because you're just so good to us, may we just celebrate. Wherever we are in our context of life right now as regards to our spirituality, regarding our walk in life as a follower of Christ, I pray that you would meet us with your word there. Lord, and that you would test us and that you would measure us. And Lord, that we would not be found wanting. Lord, that at the end of all things, you may be pleased with us and take great pride and pleasure in us as your bride as we labor to make much of you and to rightly portray through our reverence who you are because a lost world do not have eyes to see that. And I pray that we would not be a hindrance through our irreverence in presenting a false reality of what it is to have a relationship with Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.